0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So I feel like for um, the return of of some of our our folks that have been um, gone for a little while that uh, I should qualify that, yes, we've continued in the book of Philippians. We just haven't got very far since you last were with us, but... Um, nevertheless, it's uh, hopefully been a, a profitable, encouraging time, and hope, we're grateful to have everybody back. But uh, after weeks, though, of, of working our way through the first chapter of Philippians, and it was an extended period of time, we, it's a foundation you need to establish, and Paul had a lot of truth-rich things that we needed to give time and attention to. But after A number of weeks of working our way through the first chapter of Philippians and covering matters of introduction, uh, matters of gospel partnership, and you remember this is one of the most gospel intense books that you have, Even, and we can say that even in relation to things like Romans and Galatians, the intensity of uh, per word and uh, per emphasis, as it were, on the gospel and its development, so we have gospel partnership. Uh, Matters of relationship and friendship, a matter of affection, a tremendous affection for this this church. And given there are other churches that there was a a strong range and expression of affection for, but it it is unique, at least on some level, um, even this being a friendship epistle, as it were the the nature of how he prayed for them not just saying uh, I'm praying for you but this uh, pursuit of their sanctification expressed through prayer the reports of the gospel's progress and and Paul able to rejoice in the gospel progressing even sometimes when it came at the expense of uh, others acting maliciously toward him and then Paul's magnificent dilemma of being with Christ or remaining on in service to the Philippians it was a lot that we covered in chapter 1 and and even with that dilemma what was the dilemma well To be with Christ, that was by far better, but to remain with you is is for your benefit. So I'm going to act like Christ. What I'm going to do, I'm going to put what's best for me and I'm going to set that aside for what's best for you, and specifically with a view to your progress and joy in the faith. So again, it was a long walk through that. But then we finally came to the first command of the letter. And again, as I've mentioned before, it's it's very different than James. James was our most recent engagement in the New Testament letters in terms of uh, long term exposition and and James very quickly was giving us command, 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 command. Paul kind of built up, and then here's a command, and here's a really big one. And we came to that first command of the letter, and for all that waiting and even building up to what was coming, I'd say it didn't disappoint. Now, it's probably a terrible thing to say, because do I ever come to a New Testament Scriptures and say, well, you know, that was kind of disappointing, no, and not necessarily, but when you do have a big buildup, you do hope to, to have something that's of, of weight and consequence, and it certainly didn 't disappoint, as it was not some uh, simple or generic command. Um, sometimes we'll have kind of what I would say maintenance commands, commands of just, okay, this is a, a, a larger or a smaller piece of a larger picture to to walk well or to, to walk in obedience or how we ought to do certain things. but it wasn't just that, it was, uh, it was not a simple or generic command but one that would contribute to something uh, more weighty in consequence to the subsequent passages. It really impacts how we view the whole of the letter. It wasn't just a, a building towards something. It, it really was consequential. And also we needed to view it in, in light of what he had just expressed in chapter 1, verse 21. So it was, not a, it was a command um, rooted, I would argue, directly in Paul's desire for the Philippians to join him in his own. Uh, articulation of his, uh, his heart and his motivation to live as Christ and die as gain. And so you can imagine the Philippians reading that in verse 21, this big buildup. He comes to die and says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And maybe you're thinking like the Philippians, well, what does that mean for me? And then he says, well, here, here's this command you may have been waiting on and it's only live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's your expression, your working out of to live as Christ and to die as gain. So it was the call to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And a, a command that I've argued encapsulates all the other commands of the book, commands that are themselves rich and weighty, but can be considered to have a view to this one great call of living worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think you could look at every other command and say, yes, that's, a, that's an outworking of that command, of living worthy of the gospel. Commands that, in that regard, kind of answer the question of how. So maybe you got to verse 27 I tried to give you some measure of application. I think it was immediately there in 27, 28, 29, 30. But maybe you're like, ah, I don't know, I, don't, I need more. I need to, to work it out even more. Well, look at all the other commands because they're working out what that looks like, how to live worthy of the gospel, gospel of Christ. Now, while recognizing that the, the whole of the letter, though, and its commands will go on to build this opening command's application expectations, we we need not overlook what is immediately stated regarding its application expectations. So as I just mentioned, there there is some immediate application. So let's read that together. Verses 27 and 28. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. So we just pause there. You remember he said, one, I value being with you. That's the nature of the local church. It wasn't, well, I have this great letter-writing ministry to all these different places, and and isn't it nice to have my fame and my uh, ex- my influence expanded? No, there was value in being with them, and I even think about I think it's a third John. He says I have more to say, but pen and paper aren't going to do. Person in person, there's value to that. There's value to the assembly, but beyond that, he's saying whether I come or whether I hear there's the expectation of obedience, that you're doing this. So I'm going to hear or find out that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you, and that too from God. So again, as you may recall, we recognize that Paul had a clear expectation for this command to be heeded and obeyed. It wasn't some ideal to be aspired to or, or something that should shape our philosophy of life. It, yeah, I want, to have a, I want to have a gospel-worthy life. Just this broad, general, disconnected philosophy. No, it was a command that had expectations for real and tangible actions. Ones that Paul would come, to come and, and witness among them. And if he couldn't, if he was restricted from joining them... Then he at least would hear about their reports of walking in the prescribed expectations of a gospel-worthy life. And the nature of the immediate applications and expectations were actions forged by a unity of mind in the Lord. And how fitting this was, as the command encapsulates all the subsequent commands of the book, a book that is cultivating a greater pursuit and securing of a unity of mind in the Lord, or as we might ought to further express it, a humble unity of mind in the Lord. That's what he's driving at throughout the book. And again, you see that. You see that right there in that open commandment. Together, together, in one way. It's unity language that's just going to continue to saturate this letter and inform how we understand the commandments. And now, now we've come to what perhaps could be considered the the heart of the book. Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, people approach a book like Philippians or James or any book of the scriptures for that matter, you might have certain verses in mind. That's the the strength and maybe the if we could argue maybe the weakness of memorizing text or portions or being overly familiar with certain things, we, we sometimes forget like what well, that is valuable, but there's more and more and more in the book. So perhaps you come to things like for me to live as Christ and die is again and you and hold on to that, or maybe the, the maybe you have on your um uh and stenciled on your face or whatever, or on your t-shirts that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is great. because Oh, it's it's they do that, but um, nevertheless, um, maybe that's a, a value too. Or chapter three, which is really really precious. The the focus on the resurrection, and these are all magnificent elements of a larger book, with a singular emphasis that are knit together. But that being said, I'm not picking favorites because I'm in chapter two. I know I'm, I'm I have a vulnerability. It's like a, uh, which I've talked to you all before. I've mentioned, Silas was asking not that long ago, what's your favorite book? What's the one I'm in? Well, but if you, had to pick a, if you had to pick beyond that, and you have to wrestle through that. Chapter two is not just the heart of the letter because, oh, that's where we are now, but I would argue it's really the, the, the core of him articulating and expanding on the aim of the letter. So therefore, again, I would consider it the heart of the book, and it's so where we have two more commands—commands commands that give, I would argue, the most precise expression of what the opening command broadly speaks to, when calling us to a gospel-worthy life. And with that, I think I mentioned last week these are uh, really the the two central commands. The two—I uh, want to elevate them, but I think properly, underneath the the large general command, I think you really these are the two most important within the book and view of that. So commands. Given to the beloved Church of Philippi, commands that, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, carry through the ages to express within them the same measure of authority and expectation for us as they did the Philippians, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. We we are good hermeneutic student or herm, uh, students of hermeneutics, and we're mindful of the historical grammatical context, and we recognize well this was given to the Philippians, but part of a good hermeneutic is also recognizing that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God applies to us. These are commands that are given to us as well. So while our first command is quite personal, Paul's charging the Philippians to, to fulfill or complete his own joy. Well, we can't do that, right? We, we can't do that for Paul. It's over. It's done. His joy has been fully satisfied. But the principle is endured through the present because Paul's joy was but a reflection of Christ's joy. It was a, it was a reflection of this is Christ's joy in and for his church, and so the, the, the command, the core of the command, the principle, certainly carries over to the present. And then the second of these commands, it, it needs no qualification as its language is by default a universal statement for the church of any place or age, a statement that has and yet exceeds any historical context. And these two commands are, you see them in blue, and I'll just circle them for you. Verse 2, fulfill my joy. Fulfill my joy. That's really the command. The fulfill my joy but then we're going to fill it out that you think the same way. Okay, that's command number one. Number two here in our passage, larger passage, verse five. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see an immediate point of commonality, right? Think the same way. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. Very clear where we're heading with this, isn't it? Unity of mind, unity of mind, that's for Paul's joy, I would argue for the joy of Christ, and that reflects the attitude and and, an outworking of the mindset of Christ. Now, we're going to work through the first of these two commands today, or at least mostly, and then we're going to finish with a view to readying ourselves for the second command. And as many of you will recall from last week, the first of these two commands is introduced by a, a magnificent buildup of a a cluster of truth-rich affirmations. That's, that's really kind of all I got accomplished last week. And, and I did think it was important because I don't want us just to make statements. I don't want us to just affirm things casually. I think there's a weight behind what he said and there's a purpose behind it. So he's peppered us with four conditional statements, which by their nature are not left for us to ponder their veracity, but emphatically affirms their truths. So it is statement after statement after statement after statement of if, and then built into that is, and there is. So if, and there is, truth-rich statements that are forming a cumulative force of affirmations about a range of glorious truths or glorious riches in Christ, truths that we have gave, again, a significant measure of attention to last week and that finally climax with, so it's if, 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 they're one great shared then. So when he's setting us up. He's not just saying, eh, well, if there's this, then maybe there's this. If there's this, maybe there's this. No, it's if, 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 then. He's, he's building, he's uh, uh, stacking them together, uh, bringing a, a big weight of momentum to the then statement. And so, again, it's if, 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 then. Then fulfill my joy. And you need to feel that building up. That's so what I, I tried to work at last week. I, there's a measure of a rhetorical thrust and, and, and weight, as it were, that's pushing us forward. So um, as you, um, a few of us were in the, the kitchen or uh, big window room, I don't know what we're calling it anymore, but um, nevertheless, and there was a familiar thing that has happened in weeks, that the lights went off and on. And we thought, well, power must be going. No, it's Andres back. And so, you could, we have that reminder that it came and that it kind of directed and pushed us in there. But what if there was this mass of people in there? Just a whole, we're all stacked in there and they all just started to move. Well, you're going to move, right? It wouldn't matter if the lights are flicking on or off or not. It doesn't matter. If you're at the front of that, you're moving. Well, that's what he's doing here with those if, 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 if. It's pushing us to that then, then fulfill my joy. And you need to feel that building up as we come to Paul's intensely personal and yet pastoral command in our opening verse today. So please follow with me as we we'll read the whole of our passage now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Well, obviously, we're not going to cover everything today. It's uh, not within the scope of uh, what we're even going to attempt to do, but I want you to see it. I want you to constantly see 2, 1 through 11 as a unit, uh, the precious parts to it. But see it as a unit. So, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, Now, I have and, and will continue to argue that you need to view verses 1 through 11 as a unit. I want you to see it as a unit. There are clear, uh, there, there's, a clear mag- there's a clear magnificent element to, the, to it as a unit, and I trust it will become increasingly plain as we continue to advance through this passage together. But it's a unit that also has three clear parts to it. So it, it is a unit, but I would argue it does have parts to it. This is not just for the convenience of breaking it up for, for messages or for pacing But I would say this is natural divisions within the larger unit. So verses 1 through 4 provide the foundational command of the call to a unity of mind in the Lord. That foundational command. This is what's expected of you. He's built up to this, and now he's going to, to just deliver it to us and lay out that opening unity of mind in the Lord command. Verses 5 through 8 give us the exemplary example of Christ. If you wonder, why is that great Christology passage just kind of dropped into the book of Philippians? It wasn't just dropped in there. It immediately built off of verses 1 through 4. It's, it's giving us the example of exactly what you are to do. Obviously, it's, it supersedes anything that we could uh, mimic, but in principle, we can have the mind that was exemplified in Christ Jesus and his humbling himself and his others-oriented disposition and mindset. And then verses 9 through 11 yield from humble obedience to a view of Christ's exaltation. And so he's not going to, as is fitting, he's not going to leave Christ in his uh, place of humility. He's obedient to the point of death and then just, hmm, like some great martyr. No, it was not just a great martyr God highly exalted him. Now that's obviously, now we've gone beyond example. Now we're just in pure Christology and the exaltation of Christ. So 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11. Now, that being established, we're going to continue our work in this first portion of the passage today. And as we've established the approach and have now come to the command in verse 2. And while, we're being, uh, while we'll be narrowing our focus to the elements of verse 2 through 4, we'll observe a pattern that begins with the, with the command. And it runs through this first portion of the text and bridges us to the next portion of the text, verses 5 through 8. And that's a pattern of how. Specifically, how the expectations of the command are to be executed. Um, and just recently I, was, I saw a, a product review for a, um, I don't know, it's some kind of electronic device. The person said... Looks good, I think it works well, but the instructions are not in English. And that's all I'm operating with. And that's not where Paul left us. He's not just saying, well, here's this really big command at the heart of the book. He's going to say, here's this big command at the heart of the book, and here's a how, 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 how. He's going to stack these, how we're going to do these things on top of each other, very clearly us, And we'll see that fulfilling Paul's joy by thinking the same way was a how that is answered by a three-part expression of unity. And then that three-part expression of unity has a how that is answered with the exhortation that we operate with a humility of mind. And then that expectation that we operate with a humility of mind has a how that is answered with a having an others-oriented disposition. And then others-oriented disposition has a how that is answered with a having a Christ-like pattern of thinking which is unpacked in the following portion of the text. And you see, the, so you'll see these layers of Okay, I got that, but what do I do now? Okay, well, I got that, what do I do now? Well, I got that, and it's gonna build, build, build to you have the mind that Christ demonstrated, that of humility, of others oriented disposition. Now, I drew out these various matters of, of structure and textual relationships because I do think they're helpful. I think it's helpful to know up front how this is kind of the, the house of the house and how they knit together. But we need to, let's reestablish, though, our momentum. Because, uh, sometimes when you talk about something, you forget, like, well, how did, I, how did I even get here? Well, let's get back. Let's restore that momentum to reestablish our momentum that builds up to the command and then give it itself some due attention. Now, that being said, I'm not often one that calls for a, a response or a public participation in a sermon. So some places it's culturally appropriate or acceptable to... If they don't get a response, they'll just call for it. Did you not hear me, or can I not get an amen? Frank does that a lot, but that's not really something that um, you're going to hear from me necessarily. But I want to draw out the rhetorical push that I've already mentioned that Paul's cultivating here. And so this time as I read, I want to momentarily pause after each of the four conditional clauses that begin the passage. And this time I want you to supply the affirmation of, and there is. So when I begin reading, when I'll get to... um, if there's any encouragement Christ, then I'm going to pause for just a moment, and I want you all to affirm, and there is. It's not in the text. It's implicitly in the text, but you're going to go ahead and drop it back in there, as I've already done for you. So you follow so far? And because I want you to not only have some ownership and stay awake, but I want you to feel that momentum. I want you to experience that momentum that we're coming to that big command. So here we have Philippians 2, 1-2, to just a very small portion of it. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, there if there's any consolation of love, there if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way. That Build, build, build. And you've affirmed it. You recognize it. there is, there is, there is. Then, fulfill my joy that you think the same way. And I hope you hear, and again, I, I even want a measure of experience. I want you to, to feel that developing wave of rhetorical emphasis that Paul's cultivating here. And when it peaks, what does it peak at? The command that's so preciously personal, personal to Paul, personal that it would almost feel like we're, we're doing an injustice to say that it applies to us, as, as this was Paul's request, not for some abstract application of a matter, but for his own personal joy which has been fully enriched now that he's with Christ. And yet, in this moment, he's saying, fill it up. Make it full. Make it complete. And so how do we think about that? Well, it's, now it has been fully satisfied. His, his, joy, his joy is not going to get any more maximum. It's, it's done. He's with Christ. So how can we say that, well, that command's done. It's over. Had a historical time frame and a, a, an expiration in that regard. Well, as I've mentioned, it was a reflection of Christ's joy. Paul's just reflecting Christ's joy in this. The Philippians having a a humble unity of mind in the Lord was not simply a a great aspiration of Paul for an assembly of persons that he united together for special projects, social gatherings, and support of those in distress. No. Rather, as I, I hope to drive deep into your souls, this was Christ's church. And Paul was but a steward, a temporary steward of their care, as were the under shepherds or pastors that he wrote to in Philippi. And our experience in that regard is nothing less. This fellowship, uh, Grace Bible Church, this body of believers, this local church, it's Christ church. You understand that, right? This is Christ church. And as one of its under-shepherds who, but for a brief moment of history, stands in for the chief shepherd, I also implore you, Christ's body and, and bride, to also fulfill my joy by way of thinking the same way. And if it feels like, well, he's kind of leaning into this command with a special uh, measure of vigor or emphasis right now, it's because I am. I want you to to understand. I want you to grasp this. That's your conclusion. Well, that's good. You're following with me. And I think we're in good company to do this. So that being said, what what would be some support? How can we think through this? Well, William Varner, in his grammatical analysis of Philippians, stated that fulfill—we That have the term up there—fulfill— Functions to mark the thematic peak of the discourse, so it's as we've said, it's coming to a high point. What does it fulfill? Well, fulfill what? My joy. Well, your joy is all about your joy. What's well, about his joy? Expressed through your unity. Well, okay, unity. We're all in this together. Unity of mind. Well, what kind of unity of mind? With well, other, or others-oriented, humble unity of mind in the Lord. Again, it's, it's a driving element of our text. And maybe you're thinking, why? Why is Paul's joy so important here? After all, almost any student of the Bible recognizes that, that joy is a major emphasis of this book. Again, if you just do a cursory study or uh, if you pick up um, all the Bible books, uh, and sometimes you can get these little formats with like main points, main themes, main emphasis, or you just look at different titles to commentaries or messages, especially sweeping messages on Philippians, it's joy, joy, joy. Okay, we get that. So we recognize joy is a major element, and many would even say joy is the core focus of Philippians. I, I would differ in that regard. I think it's a major element, it's a contributing element to the emphasis on a unity of mind in the Lord. But nevertheless, with so much emphasis on joy weaving throughout the letter, why does this personal expression of it merit heightened attention? I mean, again, the, the whole book has joy all throughout it, so why are we just elevating this one kind of maybe passing statement? You know, he's very personal, makes a lot of personal statements. Let's get to the exaltation of Christ. Well, why? Well, let's consider how joy has already been expressed so far within the letter. In verses um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, um, we read, Quote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So we see here the Philippians shared service in the gospel and um, and it promoted joy, promoted joy-filled prayers for them. Okay, so fellow service and and gospel ministry provoked joy-filled prayers. Uh, But what have we been observing throughout our study? There's an emphasis, I'd argue, a primary emphasis on unity of mind in the Lord. That came through clearly in the command to live worthy of the gospel. It's the primary emphasis in our passage today, and it was at the heart of the book's only restorative correction in chapter four, where there's an affirmation of faithful service, excuse me, an affirmation of faithful service, but also a need for restored unity. So I would argue that his joy filled prayers were informed by a shared service in the gospel that was only successful only successful because of their unity of mind in the Lord and that indispensable unity is what is filling up his joy in chapter 2, verse 2. So again, first engagement with joy, your gospel gospel ministry with me, it's, it's producing joy-rich prayers. Well, how do we think about that? Well, we think about it in a lot of ways, but think about who is the only people who are uniquely set apart saying, hey, you know what? They are faithful servants. It's the two ladies that he's, urging to be restored. Restored in what way? In their unity, their unity of mind in the Lord. And so I would argue that part of that joy was because they were serving in gospel ministry with him in unity. We also have chapter 1, verse 18. We read, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Again, as you may recall here, Paul was drawing out his profound joy in Christ being proclaimed, uh, even if such as uh, being carried out with with a measure of malice intent by some actors. And Christ being proclaimed is a direct equivalent to the gospel being proclaimed, the gospel that we might summarize in a like fashion as we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, which begin with the second command of our passage, a command that fills out the one under our consideration now, namely fulfilling Paul's joy by having a unity of mind in the Lord. So again, He's rejoicing that Christ is preached. Well, Christ being preached, what is is that? It's the gospel being preached. Well, how would you define the gospel in Philippians? Well, you'd probably go to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and when you get there, you realize chapter 2, verse 5, starts us off with have the same mindset that Christ had, which is a direct build-off of the command that we have. There's a tie between unity of mind and joy, and I would say a direct connection to this opening command. So again, Paul's joy was bound up and most fully expressed in the gospel, and his joy is in believers having a unity of mind in the Lord. And the last of the direct references to joy in chapter 1 came in verse 25, uh, where Paul's resolved his magnificent tension of setting aside his best for the Philippians' best, which by way, again, as we've mentioned, was a model of what he goes on to express in our passage, and is also a picture of Christ's work too. So he's going to as we get further into verses 3 and 4, which we'll, we'll get to next week, he's going to talk about having an others-oriented disposition, a humble disposition, and that's exactly what he's modeling here. But that being said, how does he articulate this matter? Chapter 1, verse 25, he states, And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So as we've already drawn out a little bit, his sacrificial aim was for the Philippians' own progress and joy in the faith. He aimed for their joy, which necessarily required their unity, which then expressed, which which then would express filling up his own joy. So yes, I would argue this is a high point, as it were, an indispensable element to one of two commands that capture the heart of this letter, that you have to appreciate a unity of mind in the Lord, a humble others-oriented disposition, unity of mind in the Lord. And that's intimately connected to joy. Paul's joy and the joy of any who were faithfully in Christ. So again, He gave a rhetorical way for us in the opening of this chapter. We've already addressed that. It's crested in this expectation, fulfill my joy, maximize it, complete it, perfect my joy, my joy which is a reflection of Christ's joy, and that is satisfied in nothing less than, again, your humble unity of mind in the Lord. Now, that being said, it's an enjoyable engagement um, to walk through the the nine or so other references to joy being made full throughout the New Testament. If you maybe you didn't realize that that, that language is not unique to Paul. John especially likes it. Fulfill my joy, or that your joy be full. Which again, if you some of us just seem to be more morose, but we ought not to just be satisfied. There you know, there's passages that say your joy can be full. Chase after those. It can be full, it can be satisfied. And there's a number of those passages, and there's an there's a, a enjoyment to that exercise of walking through those. But of those other references to joy being made full throughout the New Testament, two more made by Paul. One comes in Second Corinthians 7, where he speaks of overflowing with joy in his affliction. And the other, and also I believe that's in the context of his experience in Macedonia, and the other in 2 Timothy 1, where he speaks of the sweetness of relationship and confidence he has in his young protege Timothy, even while he himself is in the precipice of the end of his own race. But even with these and, and others, other treatments of fulfilled joy in mind, primarily in John's writings, as I mentioned, uh, with, even with these things in view, there's a clear and unique weight of emphasis being cultivated here. It was not some whimsical statement about how great it would be for, if everyone just got along. That's not what he's getting at. No, it was a means of bringing a joy rich apostle to the completion, fulfillment, or satisfaction of his joy—a joy that, um, that of a the joy of that of an under shepherd of Christ's church, who who sees the beloved assembly of believers who have walked together, labored together, cared for one another, to have the unity of mind that by design brings Christ glory, secures their own joy, and is a testimony to the nature of an assembly that has been called out by God. That's the nature of this joy. And to just put a picture to the nature of the range of this joy, think back to the for a moment back to Mary anointing Jesus' feet, and this is back in John 12. I don't have it up on the screen, but John chapter 12 verse 3. Familiar story. John 12 is going to. What's next? John 13. You're going to go to the upper room discourse. So this is kind of put you in the timeline in terms of John's gospel. John chapter 12 verse 3. Mary then took a pound of perfume, a very costly pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And you might be thinking, what? You lost me. What's the connection? I want you just to to have a picture here. Think about the fact of, of that image. I'll go back to it just for a moment. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There was not an area of the house that lacked the fragrance impact. And I know that's not the concern of the passage. I recognize that. I'm I'm not like, I haven't forfeited my, I'm not like turning my hermeneutics card in here. I recognize that's not the concern of the passage, but we can picture this, can't we? We can almost even experience that description as we imagine the perfume wafting through the whole of the residence, filling up every room, every corner with its poignant aroma. And such is the comprehensive and precious nature of Paul's command here that their, jo- that their conduct would expand or increase or, or fill out at every corner, in all areas, his joy. That you wouldn't just make me, you wouldn't just encourage me that my joy would just be saturated, filling up. Now, even with such a wonderful image in mind, uh, we can't properly appreciate the comprehensive expression of Paul's joy and the command to contribute to its being made full unless. You can't just be like, oh, there's something that's going to make Paul happy, really happy, really joyful. That's true, but you don't appreciate it, not properly, unless we tether it to the object of his joy. Again, namely the Philippians, and by extension, Christ's church, would think the same way. you would think the same way. Think the same way, a command, and expectation that may produce a range of thoughts among you. I know people are at different stages in life, different experiences, so perhaps you're, some of you are reflecting back on various courses that you've had or, or lectures you've attended or just things that you've watched and maybe on um, like a history channel kind of thing or, or otherwise, and you've listened to about the, 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 or you read about the distinctions between Eastern and Western thought maybe that's coming to mind uh, think the same way Okay, well, how, how have large people groups and geographical regions how have they, how, what's affected their, their pattern of thinking or perhaps you've lived in various parts of the United States and can speak to your observations of how there are palpable differences in dialect and diet and perspective on life I, I know there is that's why Andrew and, and Andrea and Patricia came back because it's, it's really good here <laughs> the, 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 not only the dialect the diet the, the perspective on life because you go, you don't have to go very far and it changes even within a, even within one's own country, or perhaps you can quickly discern where where someone trained or, or has been a, or somebody that's been a prominent influence upon them, maybe maybe how they talk or how they think about things or even inflections They're, It's really interesting you listen to certain uh, I, I mean I've, I catch it with Bible teachers, maybe you catch it with other people, but you know oh, they were a student of this person because of even how they talk and, and their inflections and emphasis and not only just theology, but, and so you, you kind of think, okay, what well, that impacted their, their manner of thinking, their, their mindset. And, and we could go on and on with such matters and begin to wonder if, if this command ought to be restricted to Paul's personal engagement with the Philippians some 2,000 years ago is because they, if anyone, had, again, that realistic opportunity to think the same way. After all, Paul was clearly their dominant influence, and so if anybody's going to think the same way and be able to fulfill what Paul says, then they probably could have, because they had the apostle Paul. They didn't have, uh, well, we're not clear about this passage. What do you think, Paul? And Paul says it. We're clear now. And, well, he planted the church, and he cared for it, and he maintained a shared service with them, even while in prison a great distance away. And so we might think, well, if anybody could have had a a like unity of mind, if anybody could have been packed in a a general corporate mindset, it would have been them. So it could be reasonably expected that they could think the same way, that Paul's personality, his influence, his teaching and authority could leave an indelible influence upon them. The the great mystery now being who properly understands Paul in all areas so that they too can join him in fulfilling this command. Is that going to be our great restriction? Think the same way. Well, we can't think the same way because we're not even sure what he meant in all the passages that he taught and wrote to us about. Well, I think if that's where we're going to go with this, then we're imposing more on this command than it's asking. I don't think it's asking or requiring that. And in such, I would say you're not overachieving. I'm going to think perfectly, exactly, had the Philippians with a thought because they had Paul with him. I think maybe you're not just over, you're, you may be thinking I'm overachieving, but really you're just spoiling the intent of what's being expressed. You're making the hard, impossible, and the beautiful morbid, pursuing an unexpressed and unachievable goal. At best, you may make distorted clones um, of your own conclusions, if, if that's where we're going to go. If it's like, well, no, this is we're all going to think this way. This is exactly how we think about these things. Then, then that's where you're going to go, and you're going to have your own convictions imprinted on others. And, and I, for one, I'm going to have to answer for myself. I don't want to have to answer for a bunch of people that mimicked me. I don't think that's what he's saying. Think the same way. So am I advocating then, well, since we can't know exactly what Paul thought in all circumstances because we're disconnected and we're not going to have this homogenous mindset ourselves, am I advocating a dismissal of doctrinal precision? Because maybe that's, he, just, he wants us to just think generally the same way. And I'm, I'm abdicating uh, doctrinal precision. No, absolutely not. And if you know me at all or have been under my expositing of the scriptures for any length of time, you know otherwise. So what would I what I'd be expressing? Well, my conviction here is that the greater the clarity, the greater the conviction. And the more vigorously a matter or doctrine is to be defended. If it is clear, defend it, fight for it, teach it, grow in it, love it. The less the clarity, then the greater the charity, and the greater the humility that accompanies a robust articulation and defense of a matter or doctrine. Things that are more challenging or more disputed, well, so ought to elevate your humility and your charity and engaging it and engaging others with it. Even if you are right and you know you're right, be gracious and then welcome the fact that you're going to need to button up some details along the way. So to be clear, I'm not forfeiting conviction to include the conviction that most things have the prospect of being quite clear when due attention and work are applied to their study, but in proportion to the struggle for a clear and firm understanding must also be a like measure of humble charity. So with this, don't forget or lose sight of the fact that there are good and faithful persons wrestling just as vigorously as any one of us and are coming to close but differing conclusions on a range of doctrines and truthfully if going into the trenches I would often choose some of them over others that might be more doctrinally consistent with me because there's a purity of heart and their humility and true righteousness in their vigor and getting it right is a matter foremost of the heart and I'm confident that the one who is humble will more naturally enjoy a proper course correction when necessary certainly more often than the one who is cold or arrogant in their perceived accuracies now what I hope here is an unnecessary qualification for you is that we don't dismiss the value of precision, though. Again, think the same way. If I just, if I just stripped it of all precision, if I just said, well, because we're not first century Philippian Jews that, or Philippian believers that um, would have known Paul, could have consulted Paul, and when he says think the same way, we're not going to be that precise, we're going to be more broad, but we're going to be charitable in that. Well, if I just said, well, you know, precision, eh, that's what it is. No, no, not at all. It's, it's not that we dismiss the value of precision and that we don't accept differences and conclusions as a reason to forfeit the, the vigorous pursuit of maximum clarity. No. Rather, with this, I have my, one of my beloved professors and, and pastoral ministries advisors kind of echoing in my mind here, reminding us of the folly of those who would lazily kick back and just state, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. To which he would say, Okay, which one? Who is he? What do you know of him? What has he done? What is he doing? What does he expect of you? So no, we don't forfeit the challenges of laboring in and over the scriptures. Rather, we do the hard work of understanding the scriptures so that we might better love and obey the God of the scriptures. And with this delicacy of balance in view, we can appreciate what Paul is requiring of us here. The expectation is to have a likeness of mind a shared pattern of thinking that's rooted in a proper understanding of God, ourselves, and others. And such is why humility is the indispensable element in the effectual execution of this command preeminently expressed by Christ's own, others-oriented humility. And with this, we could say that a proper understanding of God, of ourselves, and others is effectively rooted in having a proper understanding of the gospel, the gospel which constituted a weighty theme that was worked out in chapter 1, that's modeled in chapter 2, that will be pressed firmly in chapter 3 regarding one's standing and valuation of all other things, and that will be relationally applied one last time in chapter 4. So once more... Paul's expressing the expectation that we will take on a gospel-informed, others-oriented, humble mindset that has a proper valuation of God, ourselves, and others. And in so doing, his joy is made full. And while Paul's joy being made full is a story that has come to its proper glorious end, it continues through the present for all who lead and care for Christ's flock because it's an expression of Christ's joy in his church. So that being said, I and Matt and Frank effectively join Paul in petitioning you to make our own joyful by your thinking the same way, having a gospel-rich, others-oriented mindset. And if you think that's silly to so personally apply such matters to your local pastors, then listen to what you don't necessarily hear publicly. I am consistently, if you— I, I try not to say much in front of Noah and Silas, but they, they hear, you can hear everything in our house. Um, but you can, many conversations with Denise and others, I'm constantly burdened by the care and welfare of this church. Not just the church, certainly, goodness gracious, but this church. And no small part, because I know its prospects of another five-year or 10-year or 15-year anniversary is contingent on this very matter, that you think the same way. If we lose that, then you lose the necessary unity to persevere. And that may sound peculiar coming from one who who presses the matter that it's Christ's church, and he will build it. But it's not peculiar at all, as this is the means. This is Christ's means and how he receives due glory in our fellowship. So if it was selfish for Paul to command his joy to be made full, then I'll gladly join that offense. But it was not selfish it was not selfish at all, as such a joy is a direct reflection of Christ's joy for his church, a unified body testifying to the glories of his own work that he's demonstrated for us. And this was precisely the matter at hand with the call for the restoration of Judia and Syntyche that we see in chapter 4, verse 2. I urge Judia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. The restoration of these two faithful co-laborers was centered on their being unified in their thinking. Now, there could have been a precise matter of disagreement or struggle, but the nature of this wording lends itself to a broader application. It was a matter of thinking the same way in the Lord. And of the ten times and seven verses, this term for thinking is used in Philippians. It's here in verse 2 of chapter 2 and here in verse 2 of chapter 4 that we have this same wording of same Thinking, the expectation of same thinking or maintaining the same pattern of thinking, a, a humbles other-oriented thinking in the Lord, and I keep pressing that, don't I? A humbles, a humble others-oriented thinking, unity of mind in the Lord. There's some variation thereof, and in this, maybe some of you are like me, and it's, I'm not offending you by that. I'm just saying, in this particular area, maybe some of you are like me, and you hear you hear that assertion. I've made it so many times. Okay. Maybe these things frustrate you when you hear pastors and teachers or perhaps read commentaries and they just make these assertions. It's like, then they don't qualify. They just, this is how it is. And I've done that a bunch already. So I have a sensitivity to that. And so maybe you're thinking, well, how can he be so direct in his conclusion here? How did you get from thinking the same way in the Lord to maintaining the same pattern of thinking, a, humble's ori- a humble others-oriented thinking in the Lord, applying it here in chapter two, applying it in chapter four, and applying it to us? Well, let me walk you through this. The pattern of thinking came from a range of uses for the term think throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, you have the word think. It's, it's a good term, consistently used, and the context determines if it's a pattern of thinking, a mindset, or a precise area of attention, with most cases plainly defaulting to a pattern or mindset. A pattern of thinking or mindset. Now, as to what may appear to be a list of descriptive fillers, the humility of mind, or the others-oriented, all those kind of things— Well, why do I keep saying that? Well, they came from what follows in our passage. They are the fruit of peeling back the forthcoming hows. Remember I said we're going to have a how and a how and a how? I've already given you the end of the hows, and then we're going to unpack them. And so this is how we think the same way, or it's the nature of this mindset. And again, these details come out through the remaining portions of verse 2 and continue through verse 4. Not most of them, or most of them we're not going to get to this morning, but that's why. That's why this emphasis. And speaking broadly of them, these hows and how they unfold, and the nature of the passage's development, William Hendricks entitled the remaining sub-portions of our text as oneness, lowliness, and helpfulness. And I thought that was really helpful itself. And I've slightly modified his language to provide us with a simple sentence that I hope helps you remember what we're continuing to cover here. The, I, I don't want to just be emphatic about it. I want to, to, to take up residence in your memory with this. I want you to think about this because it's very important. So I'm going to take what William Hendrickson, good observation, that I would concur with, and I'm going to give you a very simple sentence to go home with, but not until after break and Sunday school and fellowship time. Paul's perfect joy secured by one humble help. Wait, that doesn't even make sense. It's okay. It makes perfect sense if you're walking through chapter 2. Paul's perfect joy is secured by one humble help. And so we have one, that expression of unity that he's going to be pressing, and that that oneness he's going to be covering in verse 2. Humble, he's going to cover in verse 3, and the help that he's going to cover in verse 4. So again, Paul's perfect joy is secured by one humble help. Now, we've spoken to the matter of Paul's perfect or fulfilled joy, and now we're going to turn our attention with our remaining time to the matter of its oneness. This is a oneness that's expressed in three intimately overlapping parts here, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. So you can immediately see why Hendrickson says oneness, why I just say one again that's expressed with maintaining the same love, united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. This is clearly unity language here. So we'll go through these fairly quickly. Same love, maintaining the same love. Paul does not state how or to whom this love is applied. And you, again, you want to get a range of opinions, just read a range of resources. Who? How? What, What is the nature of this love? Well, given the passage's context, I am persuaded that he has a love for one another in view here, a love for one another that's rooted in our love by and for God and is the common pattern of relationships among believers, as well as the means of our enjoying any measure of biblical unity. And having established this, many passages likely come to mind for you. I hope so. As you're a good student of the scriptures, references should come to mind to include perhaps Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 where Paul writes, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So here we observe that there's a common foundation for the love of the saints, and it's the gospel. That's what produced that love amongst one another. Or if we reach... Back further, some portions of the upper room discourse might naturally come to mind, such as John chapter 13, verse 35. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the pattern and expectation that you should be able to look and to see. I, when Andre and Patricia came in, I think Andre was still in the, the, the kitchen when I was setting up my computer and whatnot, and Andre, it was just, it was hug, 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 hug. And I thought, boy, um... His, his hugging's going to have to go get—he's going to have to get a hugger replacement because everybody's hugging him, and that's the nature of being brought back together. You have a, a love for one another. And here we note a well-established truth that Christ, again, disciples have a shared love for one another, love rooted in testifying to being in Christ. And also, with the upper room discourse in mind, we maybe have another fitting text in view, namely in view of our passages to come that will later be in our passage, John chapter 15, verse 13, with a view more to the sacrificial element of others-oriented unity that we're going to come to, but here we have greater love is no one, or excuse me, has no one other than the, Let's just try this again. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you think, well, okay, that's 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 what Christ is doing. But what what is he going to do? Humble, others-oriented unity, and have the mindset of Christ. It's part of our loving one another. So here we observe that the others-oriented, self-giving love that Christ exemplifies ought to be a shared expression of love among believers, a matter that Paul will soon turn to himself. And so, again, the first element of our shared oneness is maintaining the same love. Again, I would argue our view to our love for one another. Then the second element is being united in spirit. And what we expressed here as being united in spirit is actually one word that it's not duplicated anywhere else in the New Testament. This is part of the reason you may notice a range of ways in which this term is translated amongst maybe your various translations. United in spirit, of one accord, and full accord, being, of being full accord. There's, there's a range of ways in which we're, people are trying to figure out the best way to express this. And this is a matter where I'm left to trust the skill of linguists and translators as the root word is that of of soul. So it's not the full term, but the, again, the root term there is soul. And yet that's not directly expressed in the range of these translation decisions, nor does it need to be if that's not an element that's communicated by the full term. But it explains, well, we've got some work to do, and it's a unique challenge. But the root of the term, even though it's not coming out in our translation, it likely would direct a, reader's, a Greek reader's attention Back to another passage, nearby passage, that also has the same term for soul, albeit often translated as mind in its context. And I'm referring back to chapter 1, verse 27, where we have the opening command that broadly encapsulates all subsequent commands in the letter namely, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in the same spirit, or as firm in one spirit with one mind. That mind there is the same root term for soul there, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So again, um, not necessarily as overt to our attention, but I think it would have captured the attention of the Philippians with a one mind, one soul dynamic of 27, one uh, united in spirit, united in soul, verse 2, chapter 2, I think there's maybe a, a looking back, a unity of, of or continuity there. In 127, it has two words, one soul, one mind. Here it's one combination term, one united soul, one united spirit. And I draw this out to remind you of the intimacy of correlation between these commands and the letter's larger aim. Again, these are little peaks, little, oh, I, I hear that, I see that. Because there is that unity of mind, soul, or one's whole person in the Lord that has been developed and continues to be developed. Now, again, as to this term, John MacArthur also provides a, a helpful articulation of his understanding of it, expressing a, a, a light conclusion, a complimentary one to our own. He states, to be united in spirit is to live in selfless harmony with fellow believers. By definition, it excludes personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, and the countless other evils that are the fruit of self-love. And with all of this in view, maybe two passages that came to mind for me, uh, that did come to mind for me were from First Corinthians chapter one and First Samuel chapter eighteen. In First Corinthians chapter one, verse ten, Paul wrote, "Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment." Now, Cor- Corinth had some significant struggles, and I'll be honest. I get a little frustrated, a little defensive for the Philippians because many people, not everybody, but there's a number of them that will impute like struggle to the Philippians' context. They'll say, oh, because Paul's teaching about unity, they must have been struggling with about unity. I, I'm not buying it. I don't think that's clear or apparent from the context. That doesn't even It's not even how he's developing his argument. Nevertheless, the, the, Corinthian, the Corinthians did have a struggle with their unity and partisanship, as it were, And that being said, it gives us an insight to how can we appreciate this being united in spirit. And and there we see Paul's engagement with the Corinthians. It gives us some measure of helpful articulations of truth that naturally do overlap with what's being spoken to here. Namely, that there are to be no divisions. There's There's to be a unity of mind, a unity of judgment. And such is the nature of being united in spirit. Now, The other passage that came to mind is not an exhortation or command, but a picture of a unity in spirit expressed between two dear friends, namely Jonathan and David. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 3, we read, Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. This was a profound friendship, one that exemplifies being united in spirit. And finally, we come to our third one, our third element, that of thinking on one purpose, or as might be more simply stated, one thinking. Here, Paul is returned to the same term that he's just used and broadly expressing the fulfilling of his joy. Same term, same thinking, now... Here, though, one might reasonably conclude that he's perhaps applying the unified expression of thinking more precisely. So he was broad in the first one. Maybe now he's more precise. But more precisely about what? He doesn't have anything that he's tethering this to. There's no object here. And the, the term purpose appears to have been provided for smoothing the statement out. And that would be a reasonable enough uh, in view of the term's first treatment in the verse. So why this return to a reasonable key term for the passage in book? Well, I believe it's a doubling back to a critical element of the expressed unity that he longs for the Philippians, indeed for all of Christ's church to experience. And this unity is one of love, spirit, and thinking. So while returning to a term already used, it also fills out the scope of this unity. A unity reminding us of the remarkable character of the early Jerusalem church, such as we read about in Acts chapter four. Chapter four, verses 32 to 33. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart, and soul. And not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. And with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was a sweetness to that intimacy. You know, that it's things like that, that people will say, I I wish I was an Acts two church or an Acts four church. And I've somewhat jokingly said, well, I'd rather be an Acts 15 or 16 church because I'm very grateful Gentiles were unambiguously included. But that's why we dip back and say, wasn't that precious? Because it was. Because they were exemplifying the very thing that we're being charged to here. They had a commonality, they had a unity. So here it might be fitting to ask, if you want to fulfill a pastor's joy in the pursuit of the faithful stewarding care of Christ's church, what might you do? What might you want to do? to which you hopefully would respond, exercise one humble help. Exercise one humble help. But we can do better, right? We can always do better, especially y'all. Y'all can do better. Because asking a question of that nature might imply that we're exploring good things to consider and not a command to be heeded. It's not just, hey, if I wanted to do something really nice, if I wanted to to fill up the joy of those who are stewarding in their care for Christ's church, what might I do? That sounds elective. This is an elective. So perhaps a better question to draw this matter out would be how might we live a gospel-worthy life in relation to one another in the local church to which we could respond by exercising one humble help. Unity, humility, others-oriented. And from there, or from here, when we return to our engagement in Philippians next week, we'll further develop just how this works itself out. How do we, what does he expect with this humility of mind? What does he expect with this um, others-oriented disposition, how is it made effective? Well, namely by embracing a humility of mind and others-oriented disposition, a humility of mind and others-oriented disposition that have been perfectly exemplified by Christ who, as Paul reminds us, who, though although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that humble, others-oriented redeemer expects the same of his people. And what does that produce? It produces unity, unity of mind. What does that do? Well, it produces joy. That is why Paul's joy is worthy, even necessary, to pursue, because it was plainly an expression of Christ's joy for his beloved, for his church. And so what do we have now? What is our parting charge. It's to live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel by living it out yourselves, by pursuing a humble, others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord, an all-but-impossible work that is an all-but-impossible work for a people who only want to mostly be like Jesus. Remember, James and John, last week we opened with how they want to mostly be like Jesus, and so we want to do better than that. So we work, we struggle, we pursue joy by way of one humble help because we want to be as close to Jesus as possible. And in such, promote joy, joy with one another, and a joyful unity. All right, let's go to our Lord. Lord, we do thank you that on the precipice of uh, the crucifixion and, and humility, the, 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 the pinnacle of the expression of the humbling of himself it was humbling enough to take on the form of a man. Think about how the Psalms talks about it and how Hebrews talks about it. We're the image bearers, yes, but we are right now made a little lower than the angels. and We recognize that will change, but that was the nature of Christ's humility. He took on the form of man, didn't regard a quality a thing to be grasped. And then how did it finish? It finished with the absolute terrible humiliation. And in the, the, the hours before that, how is our Lord praying? He's, he's praying for his church to be unified. And we, we think about that and we're like, oh boy, how, how disappointing we must be to him and because of there's no shortage of denominations and differences and doctrinal struggles and we're not dismissing that. And that is something that, boy, I wish we could, wish we were more refined and more solid, there's greater solidarity there. But I think we can achieve the unity that was, required of us, expressed in uh, in terms of by Christ through Paul, because we can pursue, we can secure a a unity of mind, a humble, others-oriented disposition, a sacrificial, joyful unity. And that made Paul's, that that filled him with joy. What, What can we do for you, Paul? How can we encourage you? Do this. And it doesn't change because that's the nature of what you expect of your body. That's the nature of what you expect of your church. And so we ask, Lord, that you be our help. We don't want to be um, uh, pay, uh, pew or chair critics or people that just um, come to, to hear something interesting or to satisfy the, the need or personal conviction that we at least be part of church. No, We want, to, we want more than that. We want to be a, a body that faithfully gathers together and that has a unity of mind. And so we ask that you be our help, Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage us, convict us, and empower us for these things. And we thank you for Paul's, not only his example, but his command. Help us to not view it as anything short of that. It's commanded. And if it's commanded, then you will give us the help and the means to do it. So we pray that you'd be pleased with our unity of mind, our humble, others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.